Acts chapter 8 and verse 9. Our goal uh, today is to basically pick up where we left off last week. Last week we were mainly talking about how the Gentile mission uh, began its course in Samaria and how Philip was one of the chosen uh, to carry this task, one of the original seven, uh, as well as Stephen, uh, to move the gospel mission from the Jerusalem church to Samaria. Now remember, uh, in Acts 1.8, Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit's power and work, and he says in chapter 1 of Acts, verse 8, But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that only confirmed what we were talking about in Acts chapter 8 of last week in verse 1, where it says, And Saul proved of his execution, namely Stephen, and there arose on that day great persecution against the church inside Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now we know from this confirmation of this verse, Acts 8.1 or <coughs> Acts 1.8, that God is moving His gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit from Jerusalem, its center, and it's becoming more of a centrifugal movement. Centrifugal means it's from the center outward. Centripetal meaning from the outward to the inside. And that's what we want to be as Christians, where we move people who don't know Jesus into the fold, into bodies of believers. They're moving towards the gospel, so that when they are empowered and discipled and trained in the church, it becomes a centrifugal movement where it moves out from the center, and that's what's happening here, is that God is using the sinful means of persecution against His holy name so that the church would expand beyond Jerusalem. And so we saw Philip in verses 4 through 8, how he arrived at the principal city of Samaria. Now, we know that this is no accident that Philip chose to go to the city first and not to the villages. Why would he not go to the villages first? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. One is, even in biblical times or in this age, it, cities were still transformational and they were still an important part of any society. You take down the city and the nation would fall, guaranteed. Uh, here in Samaria, they still had cities just like uh, the Jews did in Jerusalem. And so the, the, the idea here in Samaria was to go to the city where most people would do more of their economic exchange, their business, ideas would be exchanged. And so he knew that going to a principal city would eventually reach all of these villages in the end. However, we know that Philip, that wasn't his main intention, I'm going to go to the city first, and so that that's, was his strategy. I probably wasn't thinking all of that. But what he was thinking was what we need to know, which is Philip was taking the gospel from Jerusalem and to Samaria. And so we saw here that Philip went about preaching the word to the city, proclaimed to them Christ. He had a 
healing and exorcism ministry. So he was casting out demons and he was also healing the sick. And we saw what was happening. People were coming to know Jesus Christ. And what was the result? There was an understanding of the gospel. There was healing from the gospel. And there was joy because in verse 8 it said that so there was much joy in that city. So that's a result of people coming to know Jesus Christ is there's joy. You don't feel the same way. So remember, there's truth and then there's emotion that results from truth. Emotion isn't a bad thing. Tears and, and uh, are not a horrible, a horrible thing to have. It's actually a great emotion because you're experiencing something <coughs> because of truth. And we all should have one of those sobbing, teary-eyed moments you know, in our lives, in our Christian walk on a continuing basis where we're experiencing God working and moving in our lives. So that's just uh, kind of one of those things that, you know, as men, we don't like to really do because we kind of think that we feel weak. Yeah. And so we kind of sit in it. We, we uh, stand in the shower sobbing anyway in private. But anyway, that may not be you. At least that's not me. So um, in uh, verse 9 is where we'll pick up. And what we want to do is we want to talk about the challenge of the gospel to an individual's life in Samaria, and namely Simon. So let's read in verse 9. So what we want to do is we want to read a little bit, and then talk about it, and then read a little bit more, and then talk about it, going verse by verse. So in verse 9, but, that's not always a good beginning, but there was a man named Simon. So Philip had his ministry in Samaria, in the principal city, I believe it was Shechem, and it says, but. Luke is writing here. He's saying, but there was a guy named Simon. And his name was Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city. And amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest. Saying, this man is the power of God. So they were all commenting and saying, no one can do these things unless he has the power of God. And they said, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Verse 12 says, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and and women. So even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So in verses uh, 9 through 13, we see Simon believing the gospel, not really being converted, but believing its power. Believing the gospel's power was greater than his. So we saw here that. People were amazed by the things that Simon did. They weren't just saying to themselves, this is just coincidence. They were saying, this guy's got it together. But here's the difference between the power of God and the magic that Simon had. The difference was that Simon's magic only proved to serve only one person, which was Simon himself. It was not to serve anybody. And that's the difference between the power of God and the gospel is that it's meant to serve and break through every cultural barrier and tradition 
It's meant to serve all peoples for God's glory. And so we saw the difference in verse 12 when it said, But when the people believed about the kingdom of God and Philip as he preached good news and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Why? Because as we saw in verse 8, there was much joy after coming to know the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's an important thing to note here in these verses is that we know who Simon was. He was a, a sorcerer. He was a magician. He was somebody that was respected because of his magic and what he was able to do. But sorcery isn't something new, remember. In Exodus, we saw what? When Moses laid down his staff in front of Pharaoh and became a snake, other sorcerers that served Pharaoh did the same thing. So remember, there's a certain point to what magic can actually do, but there's only a certain limitation that can reach truly the heart of man. And that's only the power of the gospel. And that goes beyond what even Simon could do. Simon was limited. You know, he could, you know, take the rabbit out of the hat, so to speak, but he couldn't make the rabbit speak. And so what Philip was able to do was what? Provide for the people joy. Not to keep them entrapped in looking in awe of what Simon or Philip could do, but in what the power of God could do, which is provide healing, a release from demons and oppression, uh, a release from the oppression of sin, knowing the gospel and seeing the joy that comes from that. And so we saw who Simon was. Simon also was spoken of later. If you read Irenaeus or any of the other church fathers who wrote about the historicity, of the context, they even attribute Gnosticism to something that Simon was a father of. But Simon, in verse 13, it says, Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So even Simon couldn't raise the lame, he couldn't even heal the sick like Philip could, because the power of the gospel is what people were seeing. They were seeing their need not for just physical healing, but for a heart transformation. And and that's what Simon lacked, actually, as we see here. But it's amazing that what we saw is that Simon was amazed, he believed, and he was baptized. So we assume that, hey, he must become a true follower of Jesus Christ, but we know that that's not always the case, as the same situation happened with Jesus as he walked this earth that one supposedly believed in what Jesus said but in the end betrayed him which was Jesus and so we know that there's nothing new about us even today in within the four walls that we refer to as the church there are many who say I'm a Christian I'm a follower of Jesus but I have nothing to do with the things of God it's so sad to hear about a situation with uh, a man from England who spent almost 15 years here in Brazil. Uh, it was thought that this guy was going to train up leaders and pastors and, and send them out. And two, three years ago, became what's referred to as an apostate. Uh, left his wife and fled back to England. No one knew what happened. And news surfaced that he had left the faith. He had denied the faith. Someone strong in the faith, that we thought was strong in the faith, and denied the gospel, and 
just amazing to hear and see that. But if you read First John, First John is very clear about this. John the Apostle, he said, They went out from us because they were never of us. And John was very right in saying that. And there are many who will say, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did this, we did this. And in the end, Jesus will say, I never knew you. And the reason is because they truly were not converted from the heart. And we'll see why Simon was not truly converted from the heart. You see, the gospel's power, it, it, it's got a, a greater capacity over man's ability, even here in these verses. We've seen the gospel transform these people, not from just believing in, in Simon's uh, temporary acts, but also in uh, seeing the eternal miracle of salvation come to the city. So, the gospel has moved from Jerusalem, and it's gone to Samaria, to the city. People are being changed by the gospel. Now remember last week I, I said it's amazing that uh, the gospel moved to Samaria because when you read, remember Luke 9, 51 through 56, I believe, James and John were moving with Jesus and they were supposed to go to the other side of the region and they had to go through Samaria and they weren't welcome there because remember there's a schism that's between Jews and Samaritans. And the reason it goes all the way back to around 700 BC, it started there. But there's this humongous schism, there's this wall of hostility between Samaritans and Jews. That's why Jesus would use a parable about what the Good Samaritan. Because this Good Samaritan treated this, these Jews the, this Jewish man in the story. So there is this great schism, this wall between Jews and Samaritans. But James and John walking with Jesus in Luke 9, they would say, Lord, do you want us to just call fire down on them? Because that would be about the right reaction we should do right now. Because they don't receive you as Messiah. And Jesus says, no. And we keep on walking. Do you think Jesus knew in his sovereign plan that what would happen. I think he did. And that's why here we see in verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So imagine you're John and you're going back to the same region you had wished fire and brimstone had fallen. And you are just eating your words the whole time. And now, granted, John is probably thinking because his heart had been transformed by the gospel that, you know what, I was wrong and we're seeing the work of God. But why are they sending two guys down there to see what's going on? Well, I think because of a couple of reasons. One is we're seeing the affirmation, the confirmation of the Lord's word by the Holy Spirit done here. But also confirming to the church of Jerusalem. Because what we're going to see is we're going to see the body of Christ finally coming together. And that what Paul refers to in Ephesians as the dividing wall of hostility being broken down. So look at verse 15. Peter and John, who came down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And in verse 17, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John, as we saw in verse 14, they're sent to confirm the work. 
and to call the Holy Spirit down to affirm and empower them. Now here's something interesting. In Acts 2, what did we see? We saw the Holy Spirit descend from the heavens. And, and what happened? It empowered the believers for great service. But we also saw what? A great manifestation happened because everybody was talking in each other's languages. Also, what we saw in Acts 2 is what? The sermon, the first sermon of Peter that would take place in Jerusalem and then 3,000 souls added that day. So, is there a correlation and a parallel to what's happening here? The gospel is going to a new place, a new region for the very first time. And we're seeing Peter and John coming. And they're praying that the Holy Spirit would come and descend. But hadn't this Holy Spirit already arrived? It's so interesting. So we have all these questions that we need answered. In verse 15 we see, they prayed for the Holy Spirit to fall. And in verse 16... And saying that it hadn't fallen because they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So is, is there some sort of uh, trichotomy where there's separation between the Jesus' work here, the Holy Spirit's work here, God the Father's work here. But I thought God was one. So there's a little confusion that even I had in even studying this. And I need to have some clarification. What would, what would God be saying here that would fit in his story and his perfect plan here in Acts. Because all scripture, we have to remind ourselves, is perfect. There are no errors. It's perfect. There is nothing wrong with anything. It's, there's no contradictions. Everything complements each other. All scriptures. So we have to see, what, what is God saying? Well, I believe here, if we look closer, we'll see in verse 17. Then they lay their hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Through the laying of hands, I believe what we're seeing is... The, the affirming of the next stage of the mission of the church. Because remember, the, the mission of the church began in Jerusalem as a centrifugal move. It had to move from the center. Now we're seeing it move to Samaria, the Judea, and to the ends of the earth, other Gentiles. So if we look in, in these verses right here, we're seeing the mission of the church expand to the Samaritans. But then in chapter 10 of Acts, we'll see next year... In verse 44 through 47, because we moved slow, sorry. We've been in Acts for a year, and we're in chapter 8. We might get through 9. Probably won't. So next year we'll be in chapter 10, but we'll see 44 through 47. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for their hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Speaking in tongues meaning they were speaking understood languages but still languages that I don't understand today. Meaning I don't speak Guarani. I don't speak Spanish. I, I'm attempting to speak Portuguese but even then I don't understand that. But I... I don't speak Mandarin or, or, or Russian or Tartar or any of the Berber languages in Northern Africa. I, there's just many, many languages. And so when it says tongues, it's referred to spoken languages. But misunderstood and, un, and not understood amongst those who don't speak them, which is the majority of people just don't speak every language. You know, It's just you speak every language in the world. You must be God. And that's impossible. So it's not going to happen. So verse 45 says, And the believers from whom the circumcised come with Peter were amazed, 
Because he gave the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for their hearing and speaking in tongues, stolen God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So the mission of the church is going to move even to the Gentiles next. And then look in Acts 19. In Acts 19, you see what next? In Acts 19, 1 through 7, Paul is in Ephesus, and he's saying to them, And it happened that while Paul was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. (laughs) So he says, into what then you were baptized? And these are disciples of John. And they said, well, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come as Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name Lord Jesus. The same thing, in the same pattern that the Gentiles and the Samaritans. They were baptized in the name of Jesus. And saying on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So we're seeing the same pattern. The Holy Spirit is coming in a second baptism, only based on the mission of the church moving and continuously advancing. So here's what we need to understand today. One, there is no second baptism. We believe that the second baptism, it, 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 it ceased with the advancement of the stages of the early mission of the church. However, however, this is where we have to stop in and be cautious, is that it does not mean that you are not baptized with the Holy Spirit at all. That's not true. God's word is very clear that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, The Holy Spirit washes your heart with the work of Christ and what He's done for you. And the Holy Spirit regenerates, what we call regenerates, baptizes your heart anew so that you can walk in fellowship with Jesus Christ and God the Father. And that's important for us to know. Is that you are baptized, all of us, if you are in Christ, have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's how we came to know who God is. We were talking this morning, and uh, we were talking about how did God move us into an understanding of the gospel? And I said, God the Father sent God the Son to do what we can never do on our own. And in turn, after that, sent the Holy Spirit to apply what Jesus has done for us to our hearts so that we can have access with the Father. Now, how is that relative and even important to our lives now? We could never, ever say yes to God without the Holy Spirit transforming our hearts. That's why we pray. When we pray for a lost person, we say one thing. God, we ask that you would open their eyes of their heart to understand the gospel through the Holy Spirit. Every person, I don't care where you lean theologically, it doesn't matter. You will pray. This prayer, open their hearts, God, to the gospel, because only your Holy Spirit can soften their heart of stone to a heart of flesh. It doesn't matter where you land, Presbyterian, Methodist, 
Baptist, it doesn't matter. All of us pray the same prayer because we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit's work, just like the early church. It is impossible for us to come to God on our own. It would nullify Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and we would be boasting in ourselves and not in what Christ has done. Church, remember, it's not about you. It's not about what you have done. It's about what God has done for us in our place, for our sins. And that should revolutionize the way we treat one another in relationships. It should make us humble. It should excite us and embolden us, empower us for God's mission and spreading the gospel. So let's look at this really really quick one more time. There is no two-faced conversion. It's just one phase by the Holy Spirit's power, working in the heart, changing us, molding us, and helping us to understand the gospel. It's very imperative that we understand that part. Ephesians 2, 11... Ephesians 2, 11 through 26. We see something very important here. But the verse that I want you to, hi- want, want, want to highlight today is this. In verse uh, 14. It's talking about Jesus. Paul is in Ephesians 2, 14. It says, For He Himself is our peace. In Ephesians 2, 14. For He Himself is is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in us, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. There it is right there, the dividing wall of hostility. So there's neither Jew, that's why Paul said there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, man or woman, all are one in Christ. It doesn't take away the distinctions that we have women and we have men, and we have husbands and we have wives. We have employers and we have employees but spiritually we're all one in Christ and that should excite us I think and that's what excited the apostles because here what we're seeing in these verses in verse 14 through 17 is this we're seeing a situation the Jewish church in Jerusalem knew one thing that if we do not go down there and affirm this work we will be continuing the same schism, the same separation between us and the Samaritans, even after them come to know Jesus. Will our separation last? And what happens is, they go down, affirm the work, they pray that the Holy Spirit would send it, falls, and they're empowered for service, and the church is beginning to unify itself after so many years. That's why racism... Ethnocentrism, uh, classism, all those things are abolished in Christ. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what race you are or what ethnic group you come from. We're all one in Christ. And what the gospel has done is abolish the dividing wall of hostility. And Peter and John knew that. And we should know that. That if you are one in Christ with Jesus, you have that unity. It makes you one with other people. And that's why I believe in church covenants. That's why I believe we covenant together as a body. We learn from each other and we grow as a body. It doesn't matter what you weigh or what you look like or who you are. It doesn't matter all those things because we're all one in Christ. That's what makes us uh, unique. So, we see this happening right here 
And not only that there's one phase, baptism through the Holy Spirit, we're also seeing the unity the Spirit brings. But let's look at something important here about Simon. Let's go back to Simon. It says in verse 18, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he does what? He offers them money. Saying, give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Wow, that's so bold. Gosh, we see the the intention of his heart now more than ever. He wasn't really following Philip because he believed the works of God. He wanted to become more like Jesus. It's because he wanted to learn how the process works scientifically to get the right uh, formula down so he could impress other people. His name and his fame were more important than God's name and God's fame. And we see in verse 20, Peter's response. You know, Peter was great at you know, putting his own foot in his mouth all the time with Jesus. But what we're seeing here is Peter rebuking people at the right moments. He's been in power for service. And what does Peter say? May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain, what, the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor a lot in this matter. And what does he say in verse 21? For your heart is not right before God. Now how many of us serve God and our heart is not right before God? How wrong is that? We need to have, make sure our hearts are clean before God, before we're serving Him, making sure that there's no impure motivation. We're not leading a Bible study or we're not doing a training or we're um, trying to impress somebody by anything what we do in our service or we're not trying to give more than somebody else but our heart's motivation is the kingdom of God and God's fame a good test and measure would be if no one saw what you were doing would that be okay if no one ever recognized what you were doing for 40 years or never in your life would that be okay And would you consider yourself still a glad servant and slave of Christ? And that's what we need. We need more of those people. We need more of those people serving with us and helping us. We need to be like those people who do not want any credit for anything, but just want to see the kingdom expanded. And that's that's just the beauty of the gospel that changes our hearts. But it makes us exemplary people who are examples for others to hear the gospel. Look at 2 Corinthians 7.10. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Paul writes here to the Corinthian church, which... If you look at how many chapters Paul wrote to Ephesians, the churches in Ephesians, he wrote six chapters. And to Philippi, in Philippians, he wrote four chapters. In Colossae, the Colossians, he wrote four chapters. To the Corinthians, he wrote 29 chapters. What a messed up bunch of people. I mean, just 29 chapters. Because you had... Uh, a son-in-law sleeping with his mother-in-law and they were not saying anything about it and you had people stealing from each other 
people taking to the court within the body. You had people who were living immoral, people who would go to the Lord's table and eat whatever they wanted and leave nothing for anybody else. Which the table was supposed to be what? To remember what Christ has done for us. And they were only remembered their own stomachs. So this is a messed up bunch of people that God's grace was still preserving. Isn't that amazing? So in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians 7, Paul gives a good reason for pursuing repentance and forgiveness of sins in Christ. But what does godly grief look like? And he says here in chapter 7 verse 10. I'm sorry, let's back up to uh, verse 8 of chapter 7. So starting in verse 8. It says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, that only for a little while. What's he saying? He's saying, I wrote a letter to you because I need to rebuke you, but maybe I was a little harsh. So if I was too harsh, I'm grieving that fact. He doesn't know because it's only by letter. So in verse 9 it says, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So he was saying, maybe you were just feeling bad because you had to repent and you got caught. Now, how many of us are like that? We repent because we got caught, not because we were really wicked. And it says here, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And then in verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, why would he say godly grief leads to true repentance and love versus worldly grief leads to death? Because worldly grief says this. I got caught and I really don't want to pay the price. I really don't want to suffer the consequences. Worldly griefs, I mean, godly grief says, I got caught, I admit that I'm a sinner, I thank you God for your forgiveness, and I'm willing to suffer the consequences, help me to live in righteousness. But I know that my sin was ultimately against you, God. What was Simon in Acts 8 referring to here? What was Peter saying? Your heart, your intention of your heart, I pray, pray, you need to pray that it may be forgiven. And he says in verse 23, For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter was able to look into Simon's heart through the power of the Holy Spirit and see, you have never been converted. You never truly repented. You never truly trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You are still lusting after the power of God in order for your own fame. You still want, you covet more than ever still the temporary pleasures on earth. What's Simon, what's he saying in response? Simon answered in verse 24, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now this is interesting because in verse, in verse, in verses, in these verses right here, Verses 18 through 24, we're seeing what? Three things. His heart was not truly converted. His heart still lusted after those things, fame and fortune. But three, he still feared the consequences more than the wickedness of sin. And he didn't even trust his own prayers. He didn't even trust his own self to pray and ask God to heal his heart. That's why he was saying to Peter, uh, pray for me to the Lord 
you know, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Because he didn't even believe in the power and the forgiveness that was still available through prayer to change his own heart. So we see here, just when, when Luke says in verse 8, but a man named Simon, but an individual whose heart was thought to be changed by the gospel was never changed by the gospel. But we see the power of God still working through that and the church advancing. Because in verse 25, we see the gospel moving from the cities, from the city, principal city, to the villages. Verse 25, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So the apostles confirmed the work in the city. And they're now moving to the villages to help expand the work. And that just shows you the power of the gospel over three things. This should change us. This should move us. One is the power of the gospel. It it changes our hearts and it softens us against racism, ethnocentrism, classism. Peter and John, who probably felt the same schism against the Samaritans, the same type of hostile feelings towards the Samaritans. That all changed because of the gospel. Now they're in the villages sharing Jesus. If you're a Samaritan, you're probably wondering, what are these Jews doing in my village right now? You know, what are they doing here? They should not be here. And they're bringing what? A message from their own city. A message from leaders being developed. A message that the Holy Spirit has come and is changing lives. A second thing we can know for sure here. Is that the confirmation of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the confirmation that Jesus has changed our own hearts. If you feel conviction over a certain sin, you know that you are sinning and you're living in a certain sin. And somebody has approached you about it maybe. Or maybe God's just working in you in general. You know that's happening. You can say definitely, God has definitely changed your heart. And he's convicting you of sin and moving you away from wickedness towards godliness. Because as we read in 2 Corinthians 7.10... That, what? Godly repentance, it leads to what? It leads to, it leads to forgiveness. We know and, and we are sure that God's word is true in what he's saying here. In Acts chapter, chapter 8 here, we're seeing that Simon the magician, when it says he believes, he believes. Doesn't mean he really believed on. So we have to understand what kind of belief did he have? And I believe it was just in the belief that there's a new power that I want access to. That's all it was. There's a belief that this power is greater than the one I had. Versus understanding this power is greater than I had and it can change my heart and give me joy. You know, all of us, we're all searching for something more. Paul Tripp says it like this. We're all living for something more. Every day. All of us. We never rest. Because we're trying to return to the ultimate, godly, pure, holy rest, which is without sin, which is his rest with God through Christ. It's amazing. If you look at your life and you consider, I've got this, I've got this, or I've accomplished this, it's never enough. It's never enough. It's never enough. You might think that being married and and having this or that is going to make you happy. It's always going to come down to the same question. Is this enough? 
And I think built inside of us, we, because of sin, we always have that question because we're always restless. We're always restless. I believe Simon was restless, always searching for something more, never able to rest in God. And I think that's what we need. We need true rest, and it's only found in the gospel and in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Yeah? Because the yoke of God, it's His kingdom. Let's stop working for our own kingdoms in whatever way. Let's stop. And let's work for the kingdom of God because that's where we find true rest and true happiness. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for Acts 8. Thank you that... um, You're continually revealing your word to us through the study. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's power and work in our lives that we can continually move and uh, and do your work here on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit in the gospel. God, we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ that we've been redeemed by, uh, by the Son of Jesus Christ, your Son, His blood. We thank you, God, that... We've been reconciled. We've been made new because of that. We've been uh, unified with you again. And so because of that, we've been unified with each other. So continue to break down the hostility that we have towards one another, whether it be because of a generational issue or a music style or because um, a personality or, or whatnot. Uh, we just ask that you would continue mold us and shape us according to the gospel and help us to rest in you. Father, prevent us from being apostates like Simon, who was thought to be a true believer, maybe, but really in the end was just proving apostate because just wanted something more than your gospel. It wasn't enough. And so help us to know that the gospel is enough and you are enough for us. So transform us this week and make us deeper disciples for you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.